Today we are uh, digging into to an entire book of the Bible. We'll be in 2 John specifically. It's only 13 verses, so we will get to eat lunch today. It'd be different if we were doing all of the Gospel of John or something. So, if you're like me, uh, little books like these tend to slip by, sort of unnoticed. They're not the cornerstone of, <laughs> you know, the thing I go back to all the time necessarily. Uh, but Second John does pack a punch. There's a lot of richness squeezed into the 13 verses of the book, and I, uh, for that reason, I don't really have a standard three points for you today. They're, we're just going to take it chunk by chunk, about five chunks, if you want to keep track. We'll take it a few verses at a time. But for everything that's in there, uh, the letter really has essentially one point, and it's this, to be careful to walk in the same truth that you've all always had. And there's a lot in there. It's a big truth. But the idea is walk in the same truth, the same love, the same commandment, the same confession, the same Christ that you had from the beginning. This is not an unfamiliar exhortation in the Bible. It happens all the time. Keep walking in the same truth. Um, but there's always a context to when the exhortation pops up. Paul, for example, is frequently dealing with people who are trying to add obedience as one of the conditions for being saved, in addition to faith. They're adding to faith. But so he calls them back to the good and the true news of salvation in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. He reminds them to walk in the truth originally declared by Christ and the apostles. Hebrews for another example of this exhortation to remain in the truth. But the context is different, again. In Hebrews, these people are just drifting. They're just losing interest. They're resuming their own old lives when the Christian walk gets tough. So the author has to jolt them awake and direct their eyes to the glories of Christ and what His ministry is toward us, and the worthwhileness of living and dying for Him. But in Second John, it's neither of these contexts are dangers. In Second John, the threat of leaving the truth comes in the form of teachers who think that they can improve on who Christ is. They think they can make the truths of Christianity as declared by the apostles, more reasonable or more palatable or more in sync with the leading ideas or philosophies of their day. They would say anyone who stays in their old, antiquated, primitive beliefs is a fool. Here's the true knowledge, they're saying. Here's what Christianity is actually about. And so John says, don't have any of it. Keep going, beloved. You have the real deal. So let me pray for us, and we'll open up to Second John, and we'll read it together. But I'll, I'll pray first. Heavenly Father, we know that everything that we have is a gift from You. Life, breath, salvation, the truth. So Lord, I ask that You would help us to see what John is saying here 
that you would illuminate the text for us, and that you would cause us to be able to remain in the truth, that you're preserving grace and your word acting through our minds and in our midst would be effective to keep us abiding in your truth. We pray that you give uh, clarity and give, uh, as Luke prayed, power uh, to your word this day, that it would be useful and effective in the hearts and lives of everyone here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. John 2, the Word of God. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to His commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. And whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. The Word of God. So the first section, we'll just tackle the header of this letter, the address and the greeting. Um, it is a letter. It's got a sender and a recipient and a greeting, closing greetings, an epistle, if you prefer. So who's it from and who's it to? Verse 1 gives us the answer. The author calls himself the elder, not an elder of some church somewhere, the elder. He doesn't call himself John. But that's about as close as you're going to get to calling him John. His letter reads just like everything else John wrote, and there's probably no one else in the world who could call themselves the elder full stop. There's really no good reason not to believe it's John, the son of Zebedee, the young disciple who leaned on Jesus during the Last Supper, the author of the fourth gospel, and probably at the time he's writing Second John, maybe even the last remaining apostle. Elderly, he's an old man. 
So this elder will sometimes refer to believers as little children, like in his first letter. So that gives us one clue of who he's writing to, who the recipient of the letter is. The text refers to the recipient of the letter as the elect lady and her children. So there's that, there's that first clue. And just for, so you know, lady here isn't like, hey, lady, you know, it's a capital L lady, the bride of a lord, lords and ladies. So the elect lady is who this letter is for. Now, you might naturally read that as referring to a mother and her kids, you know, the elect lady and her children. And honestly, if that's the case, the applications of the letter don't really change that much. Um, but more likely, and most commentators go this way, he's referring to another church and her members, the children. I think the biggest clue to that effect is in the closing of the letter we just read. Um, he writes that the children of her elect sister greet her. So it seems likely he's referring to the local churches as elect sisters, the members as their children. And then you take them all together and these make up the bride of Christ, right? So here we have two of the Bible's kind of preferred ways to talk about the church, the bride of Christ and the elect or the chosen. Um, we understand that uh, generally men propose, <laughs> and so Jesus chooses His bride, the elect lady. But however you take it, John is generously referring to her as the elect lady, not just some lady on account of the fruit which He's seen her bearing. We don't get to see people's election, uh, but we can see things that indicate that the truth abides in them, as He says in verse 2. John loves her, and actually everybody else who loves the truth and knows the truth loves her. Why? Quote, because the truth abides in us and will be with us forever. That's why. There's a truth, a permanent truth abiding in us forever, and that's the basis of our love for one another. Everyone who knows the truth loves or has affection for or will sacrifice for or will try to live at peace with those who have the same capital T, truth. We'll get into what that means in a little bit here, but at very least, we know for certain that it's not some private, subjective, or relative version of truth. I have my truth, you have your truth. Well, if that's the case, there's no reason for us to have any unity or any natural affection for one another. We need a truth that comes from outside us, a truth that comes from the objective, ultimate reality, a truth from God. And then we need to be conformed to that truth, and that's where this unity comes from. We can love one another because the truth is intimately with us and will be in us forever. It's not a fickle basis for love. And since there's such a strong basis for this love, and John has confidence that they have the same truth, he proceeds to greet her with this blessing. Grace. Verse 3, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. 
His greeting is a promise. I, uh, I typically start my emails with howdy or hello, and then just whoever I'm addressing. John starts off his letter with calling his audience the elect lady and then saying, I love you, and then reiterating some promises from God for us Christians. And I think that's something to note for our communications, maybe. Sometimes encouragement like that can feel cheesy, especially for us Midwesterners. But I've, I've seen it done really, really well and sincerely from a handful of brothers and sisters. So maybe you know some folks that do it well, make an effort in that direction, and exhort us to do the same. You can learn from John here and learn from our brothers and sisters. But let's move on to the body of the letter, the main thing that he's writing about. So this is section 2, verses 4 to 6, the commandment. I'll read it again. Verse 4. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment that just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. He's really emphasizing <laughs> this, repeats himself a little bit. So, the first thing John says in the body of his letter is that he's getting real joy out of seeing some of the members of this church walking in truth. He already said he loves them. So he's consciously happy that they are walking with the Lord. We don't know exactly the context, but he must have met some of them or heard some reports. They're walking in the truth. Uh, he says some of them. He, he's not sure about all. Either he didn't just, either he just didn't meet the rest of them, or uh, he's heard that troubles a brewing. But either way, he's happy to see the truth lived out in these Christians' lives. And. They aren't perfect, so he would be even happier to see even more of these children growing in the truth. So he asked that they would, verse 5, and now I ask you, dear lady, that we love one another. So why is he asking and not commanding? Well, part of it, I think, comes out of his love for them, and John wants to use only as heavy a hand as necessary. And so he just asks, but notice the content of what he's asking them. He's asking them that they remember and obey a command from God. <laughs> so he's not being soft per se. He's asking them to remember God's commands, specifically the commands that you should walk in. <laughs> so it's not a command that comes from his pen when he's writing this letter. It's not even originating in him at all. He's saying, I'm one of the ones that this command came to. I'm pointing beyond myself, John is, to the very beginning. The command from the beginning is to love one another. That raises a couple questions. What does he mean by beginning and what exactly is love? As for the beginning, predates John. 
It's at least as far back as the teaching of Jesus. But the text goes on to suggest a little bit more. It refers to the commandments, plural. So it seemed a full answer to, you know, where is this command from? What beginning? It's just going all the way back to the beginning, the whole thing of God's Word, all of His commandments, the whole revelation from God. The commandment is love God and love one another, as Jesus said, sums up the law and the prophets. And notice He says that this is just as the Father commanded us, not merely Jesus. So, the second question, what is love? What does it mean to love one another? Is it something that I get to determine and kind of feel out for myself, whatever is satisfying? Well, John says the same thing as Jesus does when He's talking about the greatest commandments, that the whole Bible together defines what it looks like to love one another. We don't get to decide for ourselves what love is or what it looks like. John says, and this is love, that we walk according to the commandments. You love one another by obeying the whole revealed Word of God. Interesting, isn't it, that he, 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 he's speaking in the context of truth here. But to speak of truth, he also speaks of love. But in order to speak of love, he has to speak of truth. Almost two sides of the same coin. They're intimately connected to one another. Love, it consists of being obedient to all that God commands. And this is how it's always been. You know, there's, never, there's always been an unbreakable relationship between truth and love. It's from the beginning. But since they're connected, what happens when the truth is broken or abandoned? Well, when the truth is abandoned... When you do not abide in the truth and it does not abide in you, the love as experienced in the header uh, here, the greeting, the bond between brothers and sisters who know and love the truth, right? That kind of love becomes impossible or broken in a very serious way. And so that leads us to the third chunk of verses. We'll look at verse 7 and part of 9 to get us oriented here. Deceivers and antichrists. I'll read those verses again. These commands are for you to walk in it, love one another. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. And then verse 9, everyone who goes on ahead or goes beyond or advances and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. So, the transition, verse 7, begins with four. He's giving a basis for the things he's already said. Why am I saying to you, reminding you of the commandment to love one another and abide in the truth, to know all of God's commands and live in them. Well, because many deceivers have gone out into the world. Many anti-truth people have gone out into the world. They're 
So then walking according to the truth is not a default or an absolute given for those who claim Christ. Not everyone who says they are a brother is a brother. So this complicates the command to love one another, and this is why he's going here. Truth and love go hand in hand. When truth goes away, well, what happens to love? So we have to be very careful when we're defining what he's speaking of here as the deceiver and the antichrist, right? We don't want to think of all the brothers we run into, or most of them, as deceivers and antichrists. You'll treat them wrongly when your command is to love them. But you also don't want to see a brother in every single person who has ever claimed Christ, regardless of what truth they hold to. That is equally as dangerous as he will go on to say. So, how do we tell which is which? Let's look at what John means here. Verse 7, he says that many people do not confess something. There's a theological truth that they don't believe or confess. He says, those who are walking in the truth, or sorry, those who are not walking in the truth do not confess the coming of Jesus, the Christ, in the flesh. So, let's unpack that. It's super central. It's who God is. It's what He's done. It's God's nature. We have to have the right God. So, Jesus comes in the flesh as the Christ, one piece at a time. So, what does it mean that He's Jesus? Well, Jesus is the name of a real man in history, not a imaginative religious idea. He's a real man in history. John touched Him. He ate with Him. He physically leaned on Him. He saw His miracles, heard His voice. He ran to the empty tomb and beat Peter, right? He wasn't there. And then He was there later. He met His resurrection, Jesus. He saw Him ascend into heaven. He received a vision of Him coming back. That's the book of Revelation. And in all these circumstances, Jesus existed bodily. He was and is a real man. He was born as a real man, died as a real man, resurrected as a real man, ascended as a real man, and will return as a real man. So He has come. That's not the only thing. That's not the only significant thing here. This real man, Jesus, is also the Christ, the Messiah promised in the Old Testament Scriptures, and He's the Savior of everyone who believes in Him. So that's very significant. You have to believe in the prophecy of the Messiah, of the Christ, that Jesus is Him. And not only that, Jesus came and will come again. He was somewhere else before He was born as a man. He he did not begin pre-existed. He is the eternal Son of God. He was with God in the beginning, John says in his gospel. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He still is. So, we could say, putting that all together, this is the truth of the coming of Jesus as Christ in the flesh. So, for our discernment, what then does it look like when someone did not confess this? 
What's the profile of the person that John is, is sketching here that you're going to relate to them differently than to the other brothers, to the real brothers? Well, first thing he says, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Uh, he could also say, uh, this kind of person is one of the deceivers, the many deceivers, right? The antichrist that have gone out into the world. In his first letter, he says, that there have been many. <laughs> So John here isn't talking about some final, ultimate, singular, end times antichrist. He's referring to any number, a whole, a whole class of people, of those, quote, who have gone out into the world, out of true churches, because they do not confess or acknowledge the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. And since they don't believe the theological, theological truth of God, verse 9, they don't abide in the teaching of Christ. None of His truth, even ethical truth, is for them. Love and truth go together. So, but I want to dig deeper. Who specifically are we dealing with here? How do we in FBC recognize <laughs> what John is talking about? Who is he actually talking about? Who, who do we treat differently, as it will we'll say in the later verses? So, I want to take a few minutes um, and take a look at the various worldviews, the various religions of the world, and how they relate to Christ um, to help our, our discerning eye. So, just kind of a list of worldviews here. Um, almost all over the world, there are animistic or polytheistic religions, uh, little spirits or little G gods everywhere. Um, in the East, for example, there are mystery spirit religions. They want to transcend reality as we know it. There's pantheistic religions that teach that God is everything and everything is God, and you want to be absorbed into that. You know, that's all Eastern stuff. There's deism, which is popular around our neck of the woods. Sounds a little bit like the Christian God. He makes the universe. He's powerful and He's big and perfect, but He just kind of exists and doesn't relate to us in any significant way. He's like a divine clockmaker, you've probably heard. He makes the universe, gets it going, takes a nap. Or you can have a pluralist religion, the idea that all the religions are just kind of mankind's take on who God actually is. Um, they all point to more or less the same God, the same set of gods or something like that. You have the modernist or naturalist religion, very popular in the West where the only truth is matter and energy and power. So, we are the closest thing to divine that the world is ever going to see. And then you have the postmodern or relativist religion, whereas far as we know, apparently, nothing is true and everything, everyone's entitled to their own kind of imagination. So, my question is, are these people, the teachers of these religions, what John has in mind when he's speaking of the deceivers and the Antichrist. According to this text, not exactly. These we ought to just simply classify as your normal, run-of-the-mill pagan religions. They're false religions. They don't necessarily claim any authority, though, from Yahweh or from the Bible or from Christ. They are not Christian. They're not out from Christianity, and they're not taking a specific take on who Jesus is as part of their cornerstone um, 
uh, as a feature of their religion. No, these people are, um, that John is talking about, the ones we want to be able to recognize, are people who have gone out from us into the world. They were with us in the church, confessing Christ in theology, you know, but they left. And not only did they leave, but they left because they, verse 9, went on ahead. They went beyond Christ. They're good progressives. So therefore, they did not abide in the teaching of Christ, and even more specifically, they no longer confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. They've gone ahead, gone beyond. They've advanced past this teaching. They don't live it anymore, but they used to, or at least they appeared to for a time. Not anymore. They thought, Son of God, that's a good start, um, but that's an antiquated belief. We need to innovate and improve. Move on to bigger, better ideas. Be more mature. Be more modern, more evolved, more uh, tolerant, more useful. The ideas should be more rational according to the philosophy that I'm keeping with me, according to my mind and my desires. And very specifically, they are teachers of this, not your run-of-the-mill ordinary believers. They are deceivers, not the deceived, right? But they have a huge problem. They can't improve on Jesus. You can't improve the incarnation. The only thing you can do is take elements of those pagan religions that I already listed and infuse them into a version of Christianity. You're replacing truths of Christ, not going beyond them. You can't start with Christ and then add something of your own design and end up with something better than what you started with. You just end up destroying Christianity. You make this Frankenstein religion where pieces of Christ are cut off and ancient dead religions are sewn back on in cool, new, innovative ways. So when this is done, you don't have a better religion. You have a dead religion. You have a Christian heresy. And we are not creators. We're creatures. We can't make anything new. So all we can do is tack old pagan idolatries onto Christ and make Christian heresies. And this is what God or what John is talking about in this letter. So let's just look at those again. How do we recognize this in our day? Well, consider the pluralism or the animism or polytheism, right? Remember, we're thinking of people that start off in the church. But then they start saying, man, it truly is intolerant to claim that Christ is the one true all-powerful God. Seems kind of naive and offensive. Sure, Jesus may exist, but if He does, you know, there's multiple ways to God. He's known by many names, you know. He's just, or maybe He's just a, a powerful spirit or a powerful prophet or teacher, you know. One little G God, maybe. In other words, He's not the Christ, He's not the only hope of salvation. He's not the Son of God. Therefore, in this view, it's okay to uh, worship other gods. And we should make sure to respect other religions. They, you know, they're all fairly valid. This is the pluralistic or polytheistic view. Jesus, after all, see they're referring to the Bible, taught tolerance, right? The teachers of this claim to have the true Jesus, a true interpretation of the Bible. This is a Christian idea, sub-Christian idea. It's a teaching that is upgraded 
out of just being a same, a same old pagan idolatry into a Christian heresy. So, such a one that teaches this is a deceiver and antichrist, per John. Or maybe you're in, in the church and, man, those guys in the East seem pretty wise and, and, and uh, chill. We're going to add in some Eastern spiritualism or mysticism. Maybe we can redefine Christ's atonement for sin. You know, instead of trusting in His bloody sacrifice in the flesh for our sin, we can just kind of spiritualize the whole event and think of it as a way to make us one with the universe and one with each other. And obviously, there's some truth in that, but half-truths sold as whole truths, you've probably heard, are whole lies. And they're the most dangerous kind of lie because they have an appearance of truth. Uh, This version is actually very close to what John was dealing with in his day. The Gentiles in his day thought that this incarnation stuff, well, that's foolishness according to our philosophy. We're not going to give up that philosophy. So the incarnation is foolishness. Jesus may have been some sort of God, but He only appeared to come in the flesh. It was a trick, or maybe He possessed some guy's body, but He didn't actually come in the flesh. Well, someone who teaches something like this is a deceiver and an antichrist. Consider the common American deism. The idea of a powerful creator God they can accept, you know, this all came from somewhere, right? But they can't accept the notion that God gives commands or that He's intimately involved. I mean, just look at all the evil, right? So, uh, this God is just out there. He's big, powerful, not, uh, and we're not His business. That is not the kind of God that comes in the flesh. Consider naturalism or materialism or modernism, whatever you'd like to call it, the For this, the very notion of God is absurd according to their philosophy, that only matter and energy exists, right? Um, God is a… we've been enlightened, we learned that religion is a coping mechanism uh, for evolutionary purposes, and uh, Jesus never came in any sense unless you mean from stardust or from monkeys. And so, we can only speak of Christ as like an interesting historical religion idea. The Bible, same thing. They're just the writings of men. It has errors all over the place. There's no real Messiah prophecy or fulfillment, right? There's no Christ. Um, Those primitive Christians are holding on to antiquated ideas. We have, however, have gone on from the apostles' teaching of Christ. This ideology, uh, you may know, has totally infected the church in the West. The majority of the old denominations in America and everywhere else are in this category. They deny the Bible is God's real word, that the real prophecy of the Messiah is real. They deny the coming of Christ as God for incarnation and for judgment. So these two are deceivers. And then much more recently, postmodernism. It's infected all of our thinking. Uh, uh, on campus of SDSU, we talked to a lot of people this year, student after student would identify themselves as Christians and then claim that there is not a single objective truth. Christianity is true for me, not for that guy over there. So, they've reinterpreted the Bible's teaching on humility to not be a contrast between pride and arrogance, humility, arrogance, but they've flipped it. Humility is 
contrasted with truth and knowledge. To be humble is to be holding all of the things you believe really loosely. And so, yeah, if it works for you, you can believe in Christianity, but it's just your truth and that's all it is. The God of the universe did not actually come in the flesh, they would say, or they would say that but not believe it for as a real event in history. But you can think it if it helps you. It helps me to think of my Christ in a different way and say, there's really no right answer in religion. And so this too, a teacher of this, someone going around teaching this as if they were a Christian is a deceiver and an antichrist. And we could go on and on and on. Um, another category is people who have new revelations from God or interpret the revelation differently. For example, Judaism teaches that Messiah, the Messiah was not Jesus, the Son of God. He has not come. So according to John's uh, classification, those who teach aggressively in this area fall under his warning. Islam is the same, uh, technically, uh, in a certain sense, a Christian heresy. They go on ahead of Jesus, verse 9, by claiming that he did not come as God in Christ, but he's simply a prophet, a good one, but a prophet. And then they add new scriptures which contradict the truth that John is abiding in. Not only that, but it infuses some of the old deism in with um, uh, the God of Islam. Not a glorious trinity, but an unapproachable, distant, single, unitarian God. A little bit of deism mixed in. And you guys know Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses that Jesus is not the eternal Son of God, but um, either creation or sub-God in some way. And they have new scriptures that they've gone on ahead from Christ for. And the list could go on and on. The point is, in all of this, is to be able to recognize what people John has in mind. They are not your average everyday pagans from around the world, nor even necessarily ordinary believers in various Christian heresies. John has in mind those that think they have found the true and better version of Christianity and their missionaries for it. They claim Christ, but falsely. They deny the truth of His Godhood, His Christhood, His manhood. They're teachers. They want to spread these anti-truths. They are committed anti-Christs. So those are the deceivers and anti-Christs he's talking about. So from this, we could biblically divide everyone in the world into three basic groups. One of them is brothers and sisters in Christ, the true ones. To these, John says, love one another. That's the commandment. The second group would be various unbelievers. Uh, just throw them all in the same bucket, whether it's uh, pagans or heretics. John doesn't really address them at all in this letter. He has the third group in view, the deceivers. They're going out and teaching. Those who have gone out from Christian theology and fellowship and are trying to bring others with them. These, he says in verse 9, do not have God. So now he gives instruction on how to relate to these people. This is the fourth chunk, verses 8 to 11, how we relate. I'll read verse 8. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you 
and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. And that's where the main body of the letter ends. (laughs) Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. A commentator pointed out from an old uh, saying, uh, some people think it's Mark Twain, but it's apparently not, a lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is still putting on its shoes. Well, how does the church handle that? Well, John has a couple commands. Watch yourselves, watch yourselves, people in your midst, and don't give the peddlers of lies the time of day. No quarter. The first thing he says in verse 8, points out the importance of being ready for this. Watch out. You need discernment, church. The stakes are real. He puts, you know, he mentions the stakes. You actually need to be able to recognize people running around as false brothers, wearing a Christian suit, using our words and talking as if they know Christ. It's very serious. I think the reward he's talking about here is whatever results from the church being built up in in, uh, uh, love and faithfulness and peace, uh, eternal rewards in a certain sense. It's not merely salvation, but something on top that is a result of great work. You're at risk of losing that, the, the love and peace of the church. But whole lives are at stake too, he says. Whoever leaves the true doctrine of Christ doesn't have God. This is a big deal. So what do you do with someone who would threaten the true doctrine of Christ? What do we do when they're threatening our churches and our families? Verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, don't receive him into your house nor give him any greeting. Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. In other words, if someone is messing with Christ, don't mess around with him. Don't aid and abet his anti-Christ mission work. Don't let him in your pulpit. Don't put him up for the night while he teaches at some local conference. Don't let his books into your church or your house unless it's to arm yourself against him. Don't sit down with your family and watch his impressive TV show, thinking it's going to help you abide in the truth. Stop him and his teaching cold, so far as it depends on you. I'm not saying go out and accost these people. I'm saying if they're coming... Don't help. And so, in this way, you can protect those you're responsible for from these deceivers. John doesn't stop there, though. He goes on to say, don't give him any greeting. Now, he's not forbidding you to acknowledge one of these guys when they come talk to you. You know, you're not, you can't say hi or something like that. Um, the greeting word there is a little bit more... Uh, happy, if you, if you will. It's more like the greeting at the beginning of the letter. You know, grace, mercy, peace will be with you. That sort of greeting, don't give it to them. They aren't brothers. You don't start a conversation with these deceivers with, I love you, like John did with the elect lady and her children. In other words, it should be the opposite. Your words to them should leave no room for them or anybody watching to think that you think of them as a brother that you approve of their teaching. So, 
when the Jehovah's Witnesses come knocking, you are free not to answer. But if you feel equipped to answer, watch yourselves and those in your house. John does not call them deceivers for nothing. And the way that you talk to them, make it clear that it is not a warm greeting, that you are not brothers. It's them that need to convert. No happy greetings as if you are walking in the truth. And then he takes it even further. That if you're doing these things, if you're greeting them, if you're having them in your home, if it smells like you're with them in some sense or helping them or receiving them warmly, John says you are taking part in their wicked works. In other words, if it even looks like you're with them, you are actually helping their cause. You're taking part in their evil works. You're legitimizing their teaching. You go from someone who John rejoices over because you're abiding in the truth to someone who is helping them dislodge others from the truth. False teaching spreads like wildfire. And John is pushing us to think um, of ourselves as taking responsibility for making sure those fires don't spread. Kind of a Smokey the Bear type of a thing. Now, use Jehovah's Witnesses as an easy example because they're literally showing up at doors. But I do think there are much more dangerous, more subtle deceivers running around than those guys. And these are much more like the deceivers of John's day. In John's day, the church's theology of Christ wasn't mainly being threatened by some cult out of somewhere. It was being threatened by an onslaught of the philosophy of his day trying to reinterpret the Bible in all sorts of ways. And that looked different then than it does now. We have different, uh, a different God of our age, so to speak. But if you grew up with the apostles' teaching and you kind of squinted, crossed your eyes just a little bit, made it blurry, these her- heresies looked fairly legitimate. There was an answer for a bunch of different questions throughout the Scriptures as to why these are legitimate. This is the true Christianity, right? But John lays down in stone something that will not enable you to be deceived when you're looking, even through a squint. They won't pass the squint test. Is there Jesus, the one true God? Did Jesus come in the flesh? Is there Jesus according to the prophecy of the Old Testament? Is He the Messiah or the Christ, the only way to be saved? And was the incarnation a real event in history? True for everyone no matter what you believe. If the teacher wobbles on even a little bit on any of these, it's time to get serious. You are probably dealing with an antichrist or a deceiver. And so way more threatening than a Mormon missionary is showing up at your door is the relativistic and pluralistic philosophical religion of our day in our nation, trying to steal our words and steal our Christ and improve on Him and and remake Him according to their religion. Brothers and sisters, love, as John said, is what God says it is in His commandments. Tolerance, we're reading in these verses, is vicious when extended to deceivers. We're to walk by truth and not aid in wicked works. And there is no such thing as a deeply personal faith or my truth Deeply personal, unless what you mean by deeply personal is that you've buried it so deep you don't know where it is. Because the truth is that Jesus is the Christ, and He came. 
And the Bible defines what Christ is as the one who rules the whole world. He's making everything new. He came once, He's coming again. It's not a religious idea, but He came in the flesh. He's real, and it matters for everybody. He is God. And to deny His Word is to deny His Christhood and His Godhood. And so it's tricky, you know, they always start somewhere, redefine the faith a little bit here, mess with Jesus a little bit there, right off this text or that text. But it won't be long until you've completely reformed according to this false Christianity. So watch yourselves. Watch one another. Love one another. Walk in the truth. Abide in the truth. Don't give the deceivers the light of day. Don't even greet them. And so that brings us to the closing. Section 5, we'll end with John today. Now, I have much to write to you. He has more to say. I'd rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that a joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. So we get back to the meat and bones (laughs) of Christianity so that our joy may be complete, he's writing, and would like to come and see them. I'd say in the midst of so many deceivers that have gone out into the world, we must not forget that Christianity is more than discernment and batting off false teaching. Just like being a parent is more than protecting your children from predators. The main thing is loving one another and helping each other grow in the truth and walking in the truth. It's true that there are grim realities while we wait for the resurrection that we have to be ready for and ready to respond to. But as John said earlier, those who abide in the teaching have the Father and the Son. There's great joy and great love to be had here, even now and all the more in the future. So whatever severity we have to show towards false teachers and deceivers, that severity ought not be for the love of fighting them. That's not the main thing. We are severe in that area because we love the treasure that we have in Christ and in one another. We love His bride. We love Him. We love His salvation. So, we have to be careful not to let our discernment misfire. It may be that we have been really hasty to think of someone as a deceiver or an antichrist, or even, even if you don't consciously thinking of them as that, to treat them as one. But in reality, they're an actual brother. They haven't failed in the ways that John is saying that they've rejected Christ. They just have some things to grow in, some things to be rebuked for. For example, John, the old elder, <laughs> was certainly more mature in his walking in the truth than any of the children that he's writing to. That doesn't make him write them off as deceivers. It doesn't even discourage him a little bit. He's rejoicing to see them walking in the truth in whatever way that they are. Whatever immaturity they might have doesn't dampen his excitement in wanting to see them again. He's urging them to love one another and walk in the truth. They are doing so imperfectly, but he loves them. And he's, he's, he would rejoice to see them face to face.
You should know that in the third letter, the next letter, he mentions a certain guy named Diotrephes, who has apparently found something he doesn't like in John. Diotrephes has been too discerning in a certain sense. He doesn't welcome the brothers from John. He's not greeting them or having them into their homes. He's doing that to John. So let's be discerning even in our discernment. We really ought to greet one another as long as we are actually brothers and sisters with joy, even if there's rebukes or encouragements that need to happen. We love each other, and out of that love we discern. Love is the first thing. Truth is the first thing. Keeping deceivers away is just one of many ways that we can love one another in the truth. So stick to the commandment and stick to the truth from the beginning that we've had. That God loved us, and in sending His Son to the, in the flesh to die for our sin, He has freed us and adopted us as His children. And so we ought to love one another as He loved us and as He commands. And however much we walk in this, however much we grow in walking in this, the more joy we will have in one another. And so it is worth it if that's the central thing. But watch yourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this world of sin and darkness is confusing. And yet you are light. You have made your light to shine in us and on us. And so we ask that this word would be effective in causing us to know who are brothers and who are not, and that we would have love for the brothers and have discernment and opposition towards those who are not. But we know these things are hard. I confess that they're sometimes harder than we know what to do with and complicated. So give us wisdom. James, you say that if we ask for wisdom, we will receive it. So, Lord, we ask for wisdom and how to know these things. And in the meantime and the whole time, Lord, give us a love for one another. Cause us to abide in the truth. You know, all of this is grace. You give to all those who ask, and you save all those who believe. So, carry us home. Preserve us. And pray that you, we would... Remain faithful and so receive the full reward, full reward of you and one another. In Jesus' name, amen.